Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page and contribute at any level, even if it's just a dollar. And you'll be able to hear all of my patron-only materials, including my next installment on the great archaeological discoveries. But now I want to play an interview that I just conducted with a fellow historian and friend, Deborah Hamer, who is a historian of the Dutch Empire. She has a PhD in early modern European history, but she is also a research fellow at the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture, and she is an associate editor of Gotham, which is the New Netherland Institute's blog on the history of New York. So I wanted to talk to Deborah because I, in my own lectures, I've just been getting into the beginnings of colonial history, European colonialism, and particularly, of course, the Dutch keep coming up as early pioneers and early instigators of European trade and colonization abroad. And I wanted to have her perspective to illuminate more of the subtleties and the complexity of what the Dutch Empire was all about and how it worked. So I'm going to play in a moment my interview with her, which is the first time I've conducted an interview remotely. And unfortunately, I was not able to get the online program to record properly, so we did it over the phone. And that means that Deborah's audio is not as clear or crisp as I would like, but I hope you're still able to understand her and follow this conversation. I think this is a really good moment to sort of have this interview for me because I've just been starting to get into European colonization. I just started talking a bit about the Dutch and the Dutch Empire. So it's good to talk to someone who actually knows about the Dutch and the Dutch Empire. I mean, I feel like people don't talk about it enough. What if my goal is definitely to increase the coverage of, you know, wider, widespread knowledge of how important the Dutch were in the early modern period in terms of, you know, colonial expansion. Yeah, they were kind of the link of it all, right? Wherever you're looking in Asia or Africa or the Caribbean, you always find the Dutch there showing up creating the trade links, creating the outposts. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you'll find both kind of the Dutch companies, but you'll also find Dutch individuals just kind of hanging out, waiting for the right opportunities. So it's kind of both a, an institutional thing as well as a kind of individual thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's, I mean, tell me what you think about this, but it seems to me like there's a lot of perception and kind of lore built up about the Dutch that they were proto-capitalist, that they were just interested in making money, uh, that that was, in that way, they're kind of forerunners of modern capitalism, and also that they were so tolerant because they only cared about making money. Do you have any sort of comment or thought about that, like, off the bat? Yeah, I think that it's, um, it's kind of pervasive myth, and I think a lot of it comes from the English saying that about the Dutch who are their kind of rivals and competitors in many of these places, especially in places where the company, so the Dutch West India Company or the Dutch East India Company are, you know, in control of the situation. It's really not the case. Of course, you know, they care about profit and they want to make money, but that can't happen in a vacuum. The companies are both under scrutiny at home 
uh, it's a pretty strong, uh, you know, culture of pamphlets and um, writing and oral arguments, etc. So it's not like people in Europe don't know what's happening. It's pretty easy for a scandal to kind of make its way back to Europe. And the companies have to answer for those kind of scandals. And, you know, one of the concerns when the East and West media companies are starting is whether or not they're going to leave all these women behind the rest of, you know, husbands and support, you know, financial support um, at home. So it's not so easy to just disentangle the business element from the kind of more social side of things or the moral side of things. So the sort of social beliefs, biases, prejudices, moral beliefs of people back in Europe, we're kind of always looking over the shoulder of these colonizers and kind of shaping what they did in the colonies. Yeah, exactly. And I also think that it's, you know, it's easy to think of these kind of companies the way we think of modern companies. You know, mm-hmm. we don't know the names of, you know, the people who run most Fortune 500 companies off the top of our heads or whatever. But it was much more personal in the 17th century. So that they have the kind of board meetings of the companies have periods of time where they're open to random petitioners, basically. So, you know, an individual, just literally the most ordinary person you could possibly imagine, can go into a meeting of the richest people in the Dutch Republic, the directors of these companies, and say, oh, you know, I'm having a real problem. My husband isn't giving me any wages, any portion of his wages. I can't support myself. You need to help me. You know what I mean? So it's like a personal in a way that I think we don't really realize companies can be. And, and let's let's just back up for a moment and, and talk about what is the Dutch East India Company? I mean, like, and, and in your work, you mainly refer to it as VOC. That's the Dutch acronym, right? The, and is that, I, do I have this right? For Verenigde Ost-Indische Company? Is that close? Yeah, so that just <laughs> means United... Uh, or federated East India Company, Dutch East India Company. Right. So even when you look at the name of it, it calls to mind like Star Wars and the Trade Alliance, which <laughs> seems to be a little closer to the reality than how we think of like a modern corporation, like like you know General Motors. It's this. Yeah. It's this weird sort of state, private, par- profit-making partnership, right? Dutch 
revolt, which is this Dutch revolt against Spanish rule that starts in 1568 and doesn't conclude finally until 1648. So this is kind of a midpoint within it when the Dutch are trying to assert themselves globally uh, to take some pressure off uh, of their home territory, basically, try to take the fighting to other places that are not the Netherlands. Yeah, so they're they're out to maintain their monopoly and make profits through trade, but also hand in hand with that, they're fighting this war against these much greater powers. So it's political and it's also religious, right? This is a Protestant Republic trying to somehow fight back against these bigger Catholic powers, right? Especially yeah, exactly. Spain. There's definitely a religious component to, to the fighting. Although, you know, it's not like it's so easy for the Dutch to get along with the English in the East Indies either, even though both sides are ostensibly uh, Protestant powers. So, you know, it's, uh, it's complicated always. So I know of you mainly as a historian of the Americas, and you've worked on New Netherlands, and you're working on Brazil now, right? The Dutch, the period of Dutch power in Brazil. Yeah. And yet, when I asked you, well, what are things you've worked on that are illuminating about the Dutch and the Dutch Empire, what you sent me was papers about Batavia, which is in Southeast Asia. So you, can you just briefly tell us, you know, where is Batavia and what kind of colony was that? So Batavia is a really interesting spot, in my opinion, that, you know, Americans don't think about too much, but Dutch people are very uh, cognizant of. So it's this kind of, the Dutch East India Company kind of is uh, sailing around, you know, from 1502 on, and they keep on talking in the correspondence about how it would be much better if the Dutch had a rendezvous point somewhere where they could kind of stockpile all the goods they're gathering from different places in Asia. So they're, you know, in India, they're in Japan, uh, they're in all these different places, and the weather and the currents, etc., don't align so that it's easy to get all these goods back to the Dutch Republic. So they want basically to have this point where everything can be gathered, uh, and then a few fleets a year, usually three, will return everything together to the Dutch Republic. Uh, so that's kind of the, the genesis of it. And then they kind of settle on Batavia as the spot because it has a very nice harbor for a deep, uh, like ocean going vessel. Um, but also it's kind of a weak spot. The local Asian rulers are not super powerful. So the Dutch kind of, in like 1618, 1619, actually seize upon an English assault on them, on the Dutch, to capture this, this city. And officially they really just only have kind of a city and its direct environment under control. So gradually over the course of the 17th century, they get a little bit more into the countryside. But this is a pretty special thought because the Dutch really want to, at least initially in the early period, they want to have a kind of Dutch city in Southeast Asia. And it's, it's a question, how is that going to happen? What, what colonists can we get to come to this place? And especially what colonists can we get to come to this place when it's not actually an agricultural colony. It's not really intended to be an agricultural economy, though it becomes a bit more agricultural as the century progresses. Um, okay. But also the importance of it is really in the, rooted in the fact that one most important product, obviously everyone knows this, from the East Indies are spices. And so it's a very well situated to be a place to gather up these kind of spices. Yeah. Like cloves and dates and things like that. So that's like initially kind of in the early 17th century, that's why Europeans wanted to be in Asia. Later on, like in the 18th century, when we think about it, 
to think more about uh, calicos and uh, products from India. So this is a kind of a different moment, a little bit of a different moment uh, than it will be in the 18th century when the English get more powerful in Asia and the Dutch kind of weaken a bit. So, and the site of Batavia is, Batavia is just the name that the Dutch apply to the town of Jakarta, right? So it was pre- yeah, exactly. it was previously known and now today again is known as Jakarta and it's on the island of Java but the Dutch name it Batavia which is just the Latin word for Netherlands, right? So I think it goes to this point you're saying that they were sort of imagining they were going to create like a little Dutch world over there in Southeast Asia. Right, they wanted to recreate yeah. something, and they wanted to bring kind of their beliefs, their model of society to Batavia. I mean, I think also something that's important about that name, Batavia, is that this is like a constant source of conflict in the Dutch global empire. It's like, what are we going to name things? Because people often want to name things after their specific city or their specific province that they come from. So naming it Batavia is also giving it kind of a more like a national. Mm. Interesting. So that's in contrast, like to New Amsterdam in America, right? Which is named after the capital city in Holland. So right, exactly. Yeah. So so that's interesting. So they see it as sort of a pan-Dutch project, and you looked particularly at marriage laws and policies, and use them to sort of reveal, I think, what what the Dutch were up to in Batavia. For one thing, you found that you you begin one of your papers, and I'm talking about your paper called Marriage and the Construction of Colonial Order, Jurisdiction, Gender, and Class in 17th Century Dutch Batavia, which was in Gender and History in 2017. So you start off by saying, in 1632, the governor, the Dutch governor of Batavia, made a pronouncement that no marriages should be performed in the colony, except if they had a special dispensation. So it's almost like he's putting a break on the performance of any marriages in this whole colony. Why Why did that happen? Why And why were the Dutch so worried and so uh, reluctant to even have any marriages go on in Batavia? Yeah, so that's a, it's a really interesting moment, 1532, because basically the period... Um, between 
Lego, and it also has a lot of different people from India. Uh, but it also has a lot of Chinese comments, they would call them, I think, like free Chinese people who are settling down and doing trading and doing artisanal work. So for all that they want it to be a Dutch place, it's actually minority Dutch. And what a story is actually called in uh, letters would say, uh, called it a Chinese colonial town, basically. Mm. So you can get a kind of sense of how this is a very mixed place and European, the European element in it is not, at least numerically, the dominant element. If Europeans control kind of the, the law and institutions. But to get back to your point, 1632 is this moment where the governor stops and he says, no more of this. We think that marriage is actually causing problems here because it makes the, they call them East Indian Company servants, or what we would say employees, but they, they call them servants. When they marry, they get too involved in private trading, and that takes away from the company's profits, basically. So he's very concerned about maintaining control over marriage after 1632, so that they kind of control of the trade for the India company itself. Okay, and you explain, I think, how it was, there was a long history of kind of informal marriages or marriages that weren't fully legally recognized or weren't fully church recognized, where European men would kind of marry, in quotation marks, various local women in Asia and Africa, and then this would facilitate trade right they would become kind of the trade and diplomatic links right between these different groups and this could be good like it what comes across a lot in your paper is a lot of like ambivalence and confusion and back and forth about what sort of relationships the dutch think are helpful and what they're afraid of and there seem to be certain sort of relationships that they would encourage and see as advantageous but then they might change their minds. And and so they do this with these sort of informal marriages and then also with marriages with European women. You would think that they would say, this is great. This is exactly what we want to happen. We want Dutch people marrying Dutch people. But then even that they change their minds about and go back and forth. The important to recognize about this is that the local colonial governor in Batavia is uh, the person who would be called the governor general has a lot of power, and, you know, and the council that's around him as well. So, like, a change in governorship can mean a really intense shift in policy. So it's not, the policy is necessarily directed from the center, if you think of the center as being the Netherlands or the, you know, East India Company. It's a lot of what's happening is on the advice of the, the governor general and his council. And so small shifts in the governance can mean, you know, new policies coming up. In a way, you know, so it's, things are things are always highly changeable in that regard, which is, you know, kind of funny when you think about a modern corporation, which, you know, I think we assume it kind of, I mean, it, it's like this impersonal entity that has, like, these goals, you know what I mean? So this is much more, just an individual can have, an individual in a high position can have a pretty powerful effect on policy as a whole. Yeah, and they have these push and pull forces on them. And you explain that there are certain kinds of boundaries that the Dutch generally want to maintain. And it's not necessarily the kind of boundaries that we think of now. It's like we might think from the point of view of today, oh, they would be really against Europeans marrying non-Europeans. We would think that there would be like a color line. And there was 
maybe to some degree, or you can comment on that, whether that sort of applies to this period. But actually, the way you lay it out, they're, they're worried much more about the boundary of religion, about Christians marrying non-Christians. So they're keeping track of who's baptized and who's not. They're thinking about state of freedom, not allowing a free person to marry an enslaved person. And even that boundary, it seems, is not like as clear cut as we might think. There were like people in servitude of some kind, and we're, we're, it's not always clear who we call a slave or not. But they're thinking about these boundaries of freedom versus unfreedom. And they're also thinking about class status and trying to maintain, well, we don't want a high status person marrying someone from a lower stratum of society. And all of those things are not necessarily falling along the line of European versus not, right? Especially like with religion, they wanted Asian people or other local people to convert and become Christian. They weren't, they weren't thinking about it as white versus not white or that kind of category, right? Yeah. I mean, I think something to remember also is that the Reformed Church is pretty strong in Cavia, as opposed to maybe some other places in the colonial world. There's a whole church council, like a consistory formed. There will be multiple ministers there at any given time. It's kind of the center of the of the Reformed Church in uh, the Dutch East Indies. So um, ministers, you know, not necessarily that they have full power to do anything they want, but they can make pronouncements. And it's in the best interest, at least, of the ECA company to the extent that it is able to, to follow that. So the church really makes a big thing about not marrying Christians and not Christians. So that, that gets kind of entrenched into the laws, but, you know, kind of what we would, I guess, consider civil laws. So it's difficult to, to, to disentangle them like that in the early morning period. So, yeah, Christianity and non-Christianity is this huge line that they don't want to cross. So they are sometimes willing to, you know, the extent of the Christianity or the belief of some of these women is certainly something that's, you know, under question, or, you know, whether they're actually enthusiastic about converting is, is unclear. But yeah, so that's one big line, and then the line between enslaved and free is another big line, because they don't want there to be confusion about who is free and who is enslaved, even though that confusion is kind of built into the system, uh, because, you know... But who knows what, you know, mid-grade children obviously found. Um, and also there are different kind of traditions of servitude and in, in Asia that, you know, don't exactly match what we would think of, you know, as Americans, we think of as, uh, like chattel slavery. Uh, so there's all kinds of things. And they really don't also like it when ethnic groups mix because each ethnic group has a different kind of labor responsibility or taxation responsibility. So they don't like it when those groups get mixed up because they like to have this kind of administration where they can say, Oh, the Chinese people, for example, owe a full tax. We're going to collect this tax from them, whereas other groups might instead owe military service. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they're intent on keeping that need, but at the same time, when they go and they do a lot of censuses in Batavia in general and the Dutch East Indies, but when they go to do a census, they just record the ethnicity of the person they perceive to be the head of the house. So usually that's the husband or father. And then they just assert that all the other dependents in the household are that same ethnicity, even if we, you know, it's, it's hardly a sure thing that we're very few Chinese women in Batavia, even though there were many, many Chinese men. So these Chinese men are marrying all kinds of different women. And authorities kind of align that when they make these census determinations. Or, you know, they don't talk to people back in the house to figure out what's going on. 
Yeah, so it's not the sort of population control we might think of in a modern society where you're trying to like tag each person and, and regulate them directly, right? It almost sounds to me kind of more reminiscent of like a medieval European society where you say like, oh, well, all the residents of this province owe a certain tax or fee and all the members of this clan owe a certain sort of military service, which they do in rotation. You kind of use these like blocks of people and assign them different responsibilities and don't necessarily worry yeah, about managing all the individuals, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the Chinese population has what they call a headman, basically a person who kind of deals with internal disputes within the community or low-level kind of crimes or disputes. So the Dutch don't really want to get involved in, uh, you know, every single detail of all these different groups who are living in the city. Yeah. I think what's also important is that, like, you know, race isn't, it's kind of a malleable category at this point. A lot of, it's in the, when the Dutch first arrived, you know, even a very high-level official might have a child with a slave, an Asian, a slave from somewhere in Asia or something like that. And then the children are kind of accepted into Dutch society. So it's often, it's more about how the children are raised than what we consider, like, biological race. Like, people are, if the community accepts someone as being Dutch, then they are Dutch. Or mm. if they have the, you know, manners and bearing and dress and all kinds of things as a Dutch person would, then they're considered Dutch. And this is something that Jean Gellin Taylor has talked a lot about, uh, for Batavia, just the way that a lot of the kind of most powerful families have these female Asian ancestors mm. who are just accepted as Dutch. So it's more about, it's about social belonging. It's not inborn. That's... Yeah, exactly. And it's about how, what the community decides, kind of. Like, the community can make a determination just by the way they treat someone. Interesting. Kind of a, uh, you know, it's a little bit, it can be, obviously, somewhat ambiguous, but, you know, it's often you know, the people around that make determination. Right. And and so, so there is this sort of malleability, but at the same time, it's also socially controlled. There's, I think, one of the most striking passages in the papers you sent me is where you sort of describe the geography of Batavia and that there were these different districts. They tried to kind of manage people spatially and keep these different districts of the city where there was like a slave quarter or like a quarter of people in, in servitude. And then there was like a European and Chinese quarter. And these different sort of zones were developed. And there were canals separating them. So you had these demarcation lines. And you explain at one point, they even controlled and limited how many bridges could be built over the canals to make sure that people weren't like crossing over too much. Yeah, so uh, shout out to my friend, Mark Kehoe, an art historian, who's worked a lot on this issue, and I highly recommend her work. But yeah, she found that, if, you know, these cities are general, there's more rigorous thought put into how people are going to move through a city than we normally think. Like, the architecture really is meant to have influence over the spaces that people can occupy. And sort of you can see these controls and limits around marriage as kind of another layer of the same thing, right? Of making sure you monitor who gets linked to whom and make sure that these boundaries stay clear. And you, you talk about this incident, which was like 
it was so mind boggling to me. And I think partly it's because the whole mentality behind it is so different. But there was this sort of struggle in 1624 between the Dutch and the English. So the Dutch allow the English to set up a little trading post as well in Batavia. And that then introduces another level of ambiguity and confusion because then you might be unsure who's under Dutch authority and who's under English authority. You get these like overlapping jurisdictions. And then the English decide it's not working for them. They want to leave and go off and move their outpost to a different island. And they're going to take all of these servants and laborers with them. But then the Dutch object and say, no, you can't take all of these subjugated laborers with you because there are marriages that would be broken up and it leads to a big fight. So can you explain a little bit why they got into this fight and, and how it worked out? Yeah, so basically something to remember is that um, the Dutch and English East India companies in this period are not combined, definitely not combined, but kind of are supposed to be allied with each other, are supposed to be this like kind of Protestant alliance against Catholic power. But on the ground, it's not like that at all. The Dutch East India Company in this moment is much, much more powerful than the English East India Company. And so the Dutch are doing everything they can to exclude the English from trade uh, or from getting the colds in these different kind of areas. So both the Dutch East India Company and then the English East India Company are kind of having their main headquarters in Batavia. And the English don't like this because the Dutch have claimed sovereignty over them and are constantly asserting that they are the authorities in this city. And the English are really chafing under that and saying, you know, we're, we're getting impeded. They won't let us trade. They, they basically, they say that they wait until all the Dutch goods are traded and then they only let the English trade after that. And people are afraid to trade with them with the English. So basically they said they want to move on um, and start a new headquarters. And they have these, you know, laborers who are married to different women. And so this whole conflict plays out where the Dutch say, oh, you can't take any of these laborers with you. It's 11 couples, I believe. So 22 people and perhaps some children of these people. So the Dutch are saying, one of the the only way that anyone can marry in Batavia is if they're a free person. Uh, so that means these men are free citizens of Batavia who can't leave, and their wives are, uh, you know, were brought here basically at a tremendous cost to the Dutch East India Company. So it's not proper that they should be taken away. And this gets at really the kind of manpower problems that both of these two companies have in the period. It's really hard to get laborers. And they're still trying to build this city up. And, you know, losing 22 people seems somehow like a major blow to the Dutch mm. side. And keeping, and, you know, conversely to the English side, keeping these people would seem like a major advance for their next post that they're planning. Like, 22 people is a lot of people, basically. Even though it seems, you know, kind of silly to be fighting over such a small number of people. So basically, they're, the English and the Dutch are fighting, and the English say, that the Dutch are kind of backwards, basically, because they're trying to break up these marriages uh, and keep the women there. And the Dutch are responding basically the same thing back, saying the English are backwards, because they're the ones who are going to break up these marriages. And so the solution in the end is that they divide it so that the English take six couples with them, and Dutch keep five couples. 
guilty of that. So the compromise they reached involves protecting marriages for people who are very low status, even as it's not clear to the people who ended up going off with the English actually want to go with the English. Would they have preferred to stay in Batavia? I don't know. You know what I mean? So it's, they're, they're respecting this right to marriage at the same time as it seems like they're, you know, utterly disrespectful of any kind of personal autonomy over, you know, placement or living situation. I think that's a really interesting uh, part of that story. Yeah, yeah. And again, it seems like such a throwback to an older, to a different era where no one in this whole argument ever seems to have thought of why don't we ask these people what they want to do and let them decide. <laughs> but... Wait, exactly. It's, it's like they want to have it both ways. It's like the Dutch are saying, oh, these people are free people. They couldn't have gotten married otherwise. But then, you know, no one is saying they're, you know, no one's actually saying to them, well, you could actually decide, you know, whether, which place you want to go to or which company you want to be in the service of. Uh, so it's, uh, it's always, it, you know, the, the authorities are deciding based on what's in their best interest to recognize or not recognize. Yeah, yeah, and they come up with this funny compromise, which almost sounds kind of like Solomon splitting the baby, right? It's yes. like, you, you you take six of the couples, we keep five of the couples, and presumably both sides are happy with that. But something, something I didn't uh, quite piece together, if we back up and say, okay, the Dutch were struggling to put together a workforce, basically, right, to to man this colony. And it seems like there was this, there was like a strange kind of hodgepodge population here. So do we know like what sort of people were enslaved laborers and servants in Batavia in the 1600s? Were they mostly Southeast Asian? Were they coming from Africa, other places? So a lot of them are coming from from the Coromandel Coast of India. Mm-hmm. Um, where there is a famine, basically, and so the Dutch are kind of capitalized on this, this the lack of food to enslave all these people who can't support themselves, or and they bring them over to Batavia. And then mm-hmm. there's also this whole population that's coming from within Southeast Asia of enslaved people. So it's kind of a it's a big, it's a confusing mix, and you know, often they don't exactly understand who the people are. They, you know, also it's a little bit in some ways of a, a different system than the slavery we think of like in the American South, like cotton or tobacco planting, because these people are not really, who are in Batavia specifically, are mainly more household servants or, or artisans. Right, right. It's and not it's not it's mass not plantation like a, slave labor. But you yeah. know, not to say that they're not being abused and worked as hard as people would be outside working at field. I don't mean that. There's certainly, their situation in life is not great, and they have, you know, they're definitely subject to a lot of violence. But it's just a little bit of a, kind of a different system, I guess I would say. And they also really like to have, like, the, um, the governor general and the counselors, like the high-level people, really like to have these kind of big entourages of enslaved people, because they think it raises their status in the eyes of others. So there's kind of talk of, like, some enslaved people are kind of, you know, dressed up in this kind of, uh, I guess you'd say, livery of these wealthy Dutch company merchants. And so a lot of them, it, sometimes they're kind of for display as much as for for working, and then other people are, you know, working through them. So it's, you know, there's all kinds of different slavery happening here. Right, right. And 
it could get caught up in this kind of social status race, not just labor production. And I think people don't, people aren't very aware. And this is something that it seems like more scholars are getting into and researching and writing about more recently, is that in addition to the enormous Atlantic slave trade, there was also this very long-standing Indian Ocean slave trade that sort of connected Eastern Africa, India, Southeast Asia, and millions of people were also moved around the Indian Ocean Basin. And that's something that I personally was like completely unaware of until I visited South Africa, you know, a long time ago, uh, more than 10 years ago. I'm getting very old. You, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we know the feeling. But one thing that you encounter, and that's just part of that world in South Africa, especially around Cape Town, is the Malé community. And those are people who, they're generally called Malé, but they are descended from Southeast Asian and South Asian people who were brought as slave laborers into the Cape Colony. So another Dutch colony over on, clear over on the other side of the Indian Ocean. And it created a pretty significant sector of the South African population. And they're mostly Muslim because most of their ancestors from places like Indonesia were Muslim. And it's so, I think for an American, it's like you have to completely flip your mind around because we think of Africa as the source of slaves right? That's the story that we're more familiar with, that that was where enslaved people came from. And yet in Southern Africa, there was a shortage of laborers from the point of view of the Dutch. Just just the same as you're saying in Batavia, they needed more laborers and they were drawing on this Indian Ocean trade to get them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think also an underrated aspect of that story is uh, Carrie Ward talks about this a lot in uh, her book, Network for the Empire. Um, that a lot of those people are prisoners, so they've been put on trial for various crimes mm. in Batavia or elsewhere, and then there's, you know, the, the Cape Colony becomes kind of a penal colony uh, for these people, so there's a lot of movement like in that direction of both East India Company laborers who might be white, but also many of these other people uh, who are judged guilty of crimes and then kind of they want to kind of take them out of their network and put them in this like new foreign location mm-hmm. where they Dutch think they're going to be kind of less trouble and will provide this labor force. So there's there's a lot of I guess we would call it like prison prison labor and these are kind of people who are doing the most backbreaking work imaginable, mm-hmm. you know, building forts or dredging canals and things like that. And it often seems like a lot of the point of slave trading often is to move people to places where they don't, where they no longer have social and political power, right? You break up their connections and you get them somewhere where they're sort of isolated or dislocated and hence they make a more controllable workforce, right? So probably it was a lot of the same logic going on in Batavia and Java and in, in Southern Africa. But, you know, from my point of view, I'm always wondering, like, who are these people? Where do they come from? I'm thinking about what are their languages? What are their religions? Right. And those are the sort of things we might think about. But 
you explain in your paper, well, the Dutch were sort of trying to manage these populations and they had like this whole different system of categorization and they talked about people as belonging to these these sort of class categories or kind of class slash ethnic categories like in Lancia. So am I am I pronouncing these close to correct? In Lancia and Mardiker. So can can you tell us what what are those? What's what are in Lancia? So that means I mean you can kind of hear the sound in English like inland or kind of local people. So it's this category that they make. You know, it's a it's an unclear category, but it's supposed to be kind of local people. And then the Mardiker category is supposed to be is often uh, people who have origins in Portuguese India who had been slaves but are now free. And so like there's a lot of mixing between the two categories, but it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a way to distinguish people who have who, you know, might be Christian, like the Mardikers are usually Christian. They've mm-hmm. been exposed, exposed to Catholicism. In much it's also a way for them to say sometimes that they don't exactly know what people are. <laughs> yeah. um, they're it- not actually Yeah. When we look at Batavia, we see there's there's this class of European people who are mostly soldiers, right? That's like the bulk of the European colonizers. And a lot of them are Dutch, and then some of them are not Dutch, right? There's like, aren't there like Swiss and Germans? And, and they're kind of garrisoning the colony. And they form relationships sometimes with women. Like, that's something people do. And there was all this negotiation of like, well, is it okay for them to have a, like a concubine type relationship that's not officially marriage? And it seems that the the church would want those relationships to turn into marriage, but the civil government might not, might see that as kind of dangerous. And they might haggle over, well, is it okay if they're both Christian? Is it okay if they're a Mardiker? Like, what exactly, what groups can be acceptably matched with whom? And then it seems like, okay, well, the solution would be bring in some European women, right? Bring in Dutch women, unmarried, into the colony and match them up with your European men. And that ought to solve this problem, right? And they do this for a while in the 1620s. They bring in like boats with with Dutch women and say, good, go go in there and match up with Dutch men or European men. But this ends up not working out. They and they cut it off, right? Why why did it not work? Well there's a few reasons I think why it didn't work. Initially, so it's you know, these are often women from orphanages in the Netherlands who sign up to go. And there's this kind of feeling you get in the letters in the that, you know, they, these women are a little bit kind of, um, not necessarily super low status, but they're, they're orphans, they're not, nothing, you know, not super elite or anything like that, and they come to the East Indies and they marry these guys who are, you know, getting really rich, often on their own private trade, uh, in the East India Company, or they're marrying, you know, these high-level East India Company officials, because there's not enough women, enough Dutch women to kind of go around, basically, so low-status men, like soldiers, are still marrying you know, into the uh, Asian population in the city. So there's this kind of sense that it's like these women are overstepping their bounds. You know what I mean? Like they're getting too big, you know, they're getting too too high up 
I don't like the kind of class boundaries that are being broken by these, these relationships. But I think another aspect of this is that they really find it very stressful, I guess I would say, to have women aboard their ships. This is a very long voyage. You know, going to take probably nine to 12 months uh, to get from the Netherlands to, to Batavia. And they think that the women cause trouble on the boat, that they cause dissension. So men get into rivalries over them or... You get love triangles. Kind of ...order on the ship. And also mm-hmm. that it's really hard to figure out where to put that physically on the ship. You know, there's not so many separate spaces. And they're very concerned that the women should be in a separate space from where the soldiers and sailors are so that they don't basically have sexual relationships on the ship. So there's all these kind of concerns that are very moral, social concerns about the women, and it, it gets to be too much. They think that the women are kind of ruining the whole enterprise. And one of the arguments I make here and elsewhere is that the success of a company seems somehow to depend on excluding women from the company. So that kind of morality, they perceive the morality of the company as being rooted in sexual abstinence, basically, and keeping women out. Even if we all know that these people are not being sexually abstinent, they're just finding women in Asia to be their partners, whether forced or voluntarily. Yeah, it's all, it's weird. It's almost like a monastic ideal. Like we are, we are celibate and committed only to trading and to the company. And you explain, it's really interesting. There's this kind of similar pattern of customs in Southeast Asia and also in the Netherlands of women kind of managing trade and managing a lot of the affairs of a harbor town. And there's this concept in the Netherlands of like harbor women who might be, they might deal with commodities, they might run brothels, tapping into this need for goods and services and social connections around a port. And then this also, there were similar customs to that in Asia too, of women sort of acting as the trade contacts. And some of these women who either go or are sent to Batavia a lot of them do the same thing, right? And they, they maybe make some money and they come out of it wealthier than they were before. And they're kind of, you know, negotiating money, status, marriage. And it seems like the, the company and the governors kind of said, oh no, we didn't mean that. <laughs> we don't want, right, exactly. we don't want to be actually competing with women in this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think that this kind of exemplifies and and also sort of explains this pattern of ambivalence and confusion with these different orders and directives kind of countermanding each other. The Dutch were trying to create a thriving commercial society, but at the same time, they didn't want like disruption. They didn't want people suddenly changing places in the social order. They want to keep everyone kind of in their proper sphere. And maybe they couldn't really have their cake and eat it too in that way. I, I mean, do you think that this is a common pattern in, in the Dutch, in the whole Dutch project of sort of trying to have their cake and eat it too, to sort of create a dynamic commercial society, but, but also not disrupt the apple cart? Yeah, I think that is a common dynamic. It's the directors of the company want to make money and they want to kind of distribute plum position to people in their patronage network. Uh, but they don't want, and, you know, and they say in all the kind of sample literature that one of the reasons why the company should exist and keep their monopolies, and this is for both, uh, both the West India Company and East India Company, is that they train sailors and soldiers to be prepared for war. So the Dutch Republic is always thinking, oh, we went going to be the next war with the Catholic Papas and try to take us over or whatever. But they never envision anyone changing from being a soldier or sailor status to being, you know, in the merchant class. And so they are just thinking of ways to keep people in their places. And they, in Brazil, specifically something that's very interesting is that you know, you think, if you think of colonies, let's say in New England or somewhere like that, or in Virginia, you know, the, the myth is like people can advance themselves. Mm. Or, you know, you can come and be a poor man and then, you know, get home on a plantation. And, you know, it's not clear that those things are true in those colonies either. But, you know, in Virginia, it's true at least in the very beginning of the, of the colony. That's not actually what the Dutch want. What the Dutch want is for people who are kind of middling or already have money to migrate to their colonies and then kind of continue doing the things that they were already doing except in this new situation. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, it's very kind of, it's very, it's rigorously organized, or at least it's attempting to be very rigorously organized, even if it's not always rigorously organized. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the earlier points where I talked a bit about the Dutch myself in historian explaining was I talk about objects from American history, sort of a series on what different objects reveal. And one of them that I chose was this iron fireback that was found in the you know, the remains, the foundations of a Dutch estate house in the Hudson Valley near Albany. And this fireback shows a figure, it's basically, it looks the same as other ones that were made in the Netherlands. And it shows this figure of a, a robed woman, sort of like a classical figure of a woman with a lion, and they're enclosed in a fence with like trees and bushes. And it seems it represents like the Dutch garden, and that they sort of thought of the Dutch Republic as this like sheltered little like paradise garden where everything would be peaceful and well-ordered and they were kind of trying to then reproduce that in the colonies and maybe even extend it out so the Dutch garden is like the whole empire. I thought it was very interesting that it wasn't like a commercial symbol or even really a military symbol, right? The lion sort of represents power, but it was like idyllic and it, and it was symbolized by a woman too, which it seems like a lot of societies do. They're like, 
oh, we want to be this, these kinds of people. And so we'll adopt this like idealized female symbol. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting, um, especially from the Hudson Valley. Um, but, you know, I think also it's like they think that order resides in, and this is work that Susanna Shaw Romney has done really brilliantly in a number of places, but they think that women represent kind of order and households, that there can't be order if it's just single men running around. You have to have families and wives, and that's how you kind of claim land and get it into a kind of a productive place. Obviously, you know, in some ways they think of kind of relates to women's tasks. So like a woman might be in charge of the garden, you know, around a home or the dairy or, mm-hmm. you know, other kind of at-home artisanal uh, processes. So it's like you need a woman to make a colony. You can't have just men. And that's the way to think about it. If, it, if a site is going to be, this kind of make distinctions between places that are going to be colonies uh, and places that are going to be kind of trading forts or factories, mm-hmm. they call them, where women aren't necessarily going to be as, as important. So it's so telling that in the Hudson Valley, which is really such a central site of Dutch agricultural claims mm-hmm. uh, and colonization, that they would have this like woman enclosed with a the lion of the Netherlands. That's very interesting. Yeah. So so there seem to be two kind of competing models, right? Of the sort of company trading colony where the company really just doesn't want women <laughs> coming and disrupting things much at all as opposed to this the settler colony, right? And would you say that the New Netherlands in general are more kind of on the settler model of we're going to move Dutch people here and create a whole self-sustaining society, a farming society with women and families? Yeah, I think that's I mean, it's also something that's kind of changing over time. Um, the fur trade you know, continues, obviously, but the Dutch start to get nervous that the English are going to, you know, as ultimately happens, but you know, they're already nervous in the 1640s, about the 1630s, even about this. And, you know, how should we attract colonists? What should our plan be? Yeah, yeah. And I, and it's. People to this place. So, I mean, I think, I think that's something that's really interesting about Batavia as a space is that it really is this urban space, and yet they're kind of still trying to work out. They still want it to be a colony in, like, the settler sense in some ways. Like, they still want to have this Dutch population. But then it's not actually about claiming land, per se, beyond the city. Yeah. And you mentioned Dutch Brazil. So again, a lot of people don't even know that the the Dutch took over the Pernambuco area, right? The sort of northeastern corner of Brazil for about 30 years, right? They Yeah, so 1630 to 1654. How does that fit into this scheme? Do you think were the Dutch trying to make Brazil into a sort of settler colony, like reproducing the Netherlands, or how did they imagine, like, what they were up to? I think that's what's so interesting about Brazil, is that they imagine, even in plans for the conquest of Brazil, they have this imagination that everyone on the ground is going to welcome them, and actually <laughs> um, kind of want to become part of the, the, the Dutch Republic, or, you know, uh, acquiesce to their rule. So we'll be that, greeted as liberators. <laughs> indigenous people there who are being mistreated by the Portuguese. Um, so they'll really want, they'll be really happy when the Dutch appear to kind of free them from the yoke of Portuguese oppression. You know, never mind that the Dutch end up oppressing them and enslaving them as well. You know, that's not part of their calculation. <laughs> and they think that among the European population, the, you know, European descended population in Brazil, that there are a lot of Jews, actually, crypto-Jews, 
And then if they come, I think these people will kind of, uh, you know, throw off uh, Catholicism and, you know, reveal themselves as Jews. And they also will welcome the Dutch because they'll be able to practice their religion openly uh, again. So they have all these kind of ideas. And it doesn't really come to pass when they, um, when they arrive. They don't really get so much help. And it's kind of a very long slog until they actually gain control of the, uh, some of the countryside where there's, you know, sugar mills and stuff. Because that's what they're really after. Sugar production in the colony. So they have these kids like that kind of same kind of thing where there's tensions of like, oh, they want to talk about how they're going to increase migration from the Dutch Republic of families, but then they also want the Dutch people who are there to kind of integrate with the Portuguese population and, you know, create some new amalgam that will be death loyal to the Dutch. It, it is another one of these episodes that it was much shorter than the Dutch involvement in Southeast Asia, right? The Dutch continued to control Indonesia, what we now call Indonesia, till the 20th century, right? Yeah. Uh, but but it's it's so interesting and confusing, like what, what were they up to and how Judaism, too, fit into this Dutch project. They could actually kind of turn it to their advantage. And it's the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's the first time that a European power openly allowed Judaism to be practiced legally in a colony abroad. Yeah, I mean, the Brazil colony is so important also because that's what kind of opens up the Atlantic to this, you know, important Jewish presence in the 18th century. So a lot of the, well, a lot of the people are descendants of these kind of Jews who come to Brazil in the 17th century. Uh, and a lot of the privileges, not all of them, but then, so, and then the privileges that they're getting from the Dutch kind of force England to up to ante on the privileges that they're willing to give Jews to trust them to their colony. So it's, uh, it's such an important moment for Jewish history. You know, I've researched more about British North America, and I know that very often when you say, why were there some Jews in New Amsterdam? Why were there some Jews in Newport? Who were these people? Where were they coming from? It often traces back to Dutch Brazil. That was kind of the, the nexus where a lot of people came together and then and then emigrated to other places. But I and think... You can't, like, like, for European powers, like, having what they call seasoned colonists is so important. People who are already used to the deep environment, mm. uh, people who kind of know how things work, it, it is, those people are such attractive targets to give privileges to, basically. Mm. Right. So it gets it really gets you your foot in the door if you're someone who's actually lived in in the New World or in a tropical environment, right? Which yeah, exactly. obviously Brazil, the Dutch Islands and the Caribbean, Batavia, these would have all been radically different <laughs> environments mm-hmm. to live in from Amsterdam or Middleburg. <laughs> and and the last thing I think you kind of brought this up a bit, the the question of Dutch exceptionalism. You know, how how the Dutch Empire compares to or reflects on these other European empires, and I think that's a very that's a very tricky question, especially because most historians tend to specialize in one country or another or one empire or another. And like you said, well, the way the Dutch were imagining their empire and trying to run it is very much in contrast to this idea that the English colonies were a place where almost anybody could show up and advance themselves, and that it was more of kind of a free-for-all. 
But I think, you know, it's very much a question, how, how much was that true, even in the English colonies? And where and when and to what degree? And how, and did the English really like that idea either, right? Or were the English also kind of trying to create little Englands, you know? Like New England is New England, <laughs> just like New <laughs> Netherlands, you know, they, and they, they did want a certain elite and they wanted to create a certain model of life and how society should work. And a lot of it was kind of being reproduced from what they knew and what they liked back in England. So I think, you know, I, I guess the question for you would be, do you think that what you found and what scholars are finding currently about the Dutch Empire and the Dutch colonies, do you think it reflects broadly on European colonialism in general? And should it make people think differently about European colonization and what Europeans in general were up to back in this early era in the 1600s? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess my position is that the Dutch are actually much more like other European empires than unlike them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, especially the question of diversity, you know, that's like the first thing you think of when you think of any Dutch colony. But, you know, some English colonies were also quite diverse in the 17th century. So I, I think that that is something that kind of is over, it's too exaggerated in the historicity. And at the same time, you know, Stuart Schwartz has made this point really elegantly for, for Brazil specifically, but, you know, we think that the Dutch are so tolerant, etc. but there's actually this long kind of vernacular vision of tolerance, within, religious tolerance even, within Portuguese society. So I, I tend to think that uh, the Dutch is more alike than uh, different. But what I would say is very interesting about the Dutch and why, you know, it's useful for historians of all empires to study them is that, you know, the Dutch are traitors, but, you know, so are lots of other people in the Atlantic world in this period. And I think if we understand more about what Dutch merchants were up to, we will understand more about what, you know, English merchants and Spanish merchants and all these people are also up to. It's, it's, you know, we like to think of or Atlantic colonization as very much like a land-based thing. But there's all kinds of things happening on the water and on you know, the edges of land and ports and stuff like that that are just as much part of the story as, you know, the land-based colonization and settler colonialism. So I think that's where the politics of shore is really important. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping to talk soon to Melissa Morris about the early colonies in South America and the Amazon area. And, you know, one of the striking things that comes through is like, there was this long, long history going back to the 1500s of just sort of sporadic, opportunistic trading, raiding, piracy. And that this went on for a really, really long time before they started to like set up a little camp, set up a little fort, like, it was really this sort of trading colonialism that led the way for a long time before there was any massive control of land, right? And settler, settler colonization, like we think of now. And, and I think that that's part of, there's, there's sort of a mythology that we maybe still kind of believe in some, but is more on its way out and being replaced by a different mythology. But there's, Certainly the Dutch and the English both for a long time perpetuated this notion that 
the Spanish and the Portuguese are these repressive, like almost totalitarian regimes that just rule by by terror and they would write about the Inquisition and the brutality of the Spanish and the Portuguese as opposed to us Dutch and English who are nice Protestants and who do things like trade and we're much more humane and of course all these people around the world will prefer us you know like it made a lot of sense like when you were saying the Dutch just sort of convinced themselves that they would walk in and people on the ground in Brazil would just embrace them and greet them as liberators because they were so much better than those terrible Iberians, right? And now it seems more like we've sort of shifted over to a different way of thinking that, well, the Europeans were all kind of alike and that they were all doing the same thing. It's all colonialism. It's all exploitation. But really there was, there were different approaches, right? There were different styles of colonization among these different nations that do matter. Would you say so? Um, I guess what I would say is that certainly that one of the most important things that's been happening in the last decade is the, the study of Indian slavery. And this isn't something I particularly study, but lots of other people do. Um, and kind of seeing that the English and the Dutch are using indigenous labor well into the 18th century like, often in places where you think that it's not happening, like, even in New York or in New England. And so that, I think in that sense, it, it really is true that for an indigenous person, it's not clear what the difference would particularly be between us, you know, being in, under Spanish rule or being under Dutch rule. Uh, if, you know, labor will be extracted regardless. So I think that's something, I think that's a, a, a feature of historiography that I, I think is very enlightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also do think that, you know, there are differences, as you're saying. You know, the Dutch is, the Netherlands is a small country, and, you know, they're constantly thinking that the way that they're going to colonize is that they're going to have people of all these different ethnicities coming together, happily living <laughs> under Dutch rule. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't exactly think that's the way that some other European powers are talking about their, their colonization efforts. And, you know, it's obviously yeah. kind of a pipe dream in most situations, but, there's this kind of famous quote from Adrian van der Dunk, who's a promoter of the Netherlands. And he's just kind of saying, we don't even need anyone from the Netherlands to come to, to settle to settle New Netherlands. If we just take all the people, displaced people from other parts of Europe, we'll actually be fine with no Dutch people. And you're kind of reading that, and you're like, well, uh, that's strange. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> our, you know, and, you know, that's kind of to some extent the, the plan they put on to operation in the Netherlands. You know, they have, like, Long Island has all these English towns that are ostensibly mm-hmm. under Dutch rule. But then, you know, when the English arrive in 1664, they're perfectly happy to switch over to English rule and have no loyalty, per se, to that. So, you know, it's, uh, I think that's something that, that is worth thinking about with Dutch colonization, that there's just this tremendous reliance on other people, non-Dutch people, to, to be part of the project. Yeah. Well, and I think it is true that a lot of the so-called Dutch colonists in New Netherlands, by the end, by the time it was taken over by the English, a lot of the so-called Dutch colonists were French and German. And that continued to be, it was kind of an amalgam of like reformed Protestants and even some Lutherans kind of thrown in under this like Dutch umbrella. 
And and I guess yeah, I guess the last point we've sort of circled all the way back to America, <laughs> both of us being Americans. But it's interesting how that quote that you mentioned from Onderdonk, it sounds strangely reminiscent of the way Americans today talk about America, that like we're just the melting pot and we'll just bring in, you know, all the people who have been rejected from various parts of Europe, all the people who have been persecuted can come here to America and just become American. And, and this works for us and everyone can fit under this umbrella. And it's this, you know, sort of idealized image of like, we're just a big social experiment that's not tied to any ethnicity. And it makes me think that maybe because there are some resonances, there are some echoes in how we talk about modern America from the Dutch that we maybe kind of make them in our image, right? We sort of adopt them as like proto-Americans, proto-capitalists, right? And I think I even saw a few days ago some headline about the Dutch were Americans before America. Like they they were a republic and they were capitalist and commercial and tolerant. And we sort of, we, we kind of cast them as like, yeah, Americans before America. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. And I mean, I think part of it goes back to, you know, what colonial American historians have been doing in the last few decades. You know, there's kind of this long battle between historians of New England and historians of Virginia about, you know, mm-hmm. which one was the kind of seat of America, yeah. who was the, you know, progenitor of, of the United States. And then some historians of uh, what's called the middle colonies, so like New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, came in and said, well, no, I think that this this region is actually kind of the, the start of the United States because of all those reasons that you're saying. So I think it, it is true that we are, we're always looking for origin stories, I suppose. But I think something that's very interesting about that also is, you know, the, the Netherlands is cast as a republic in, in that model, but, you know, it's not exactly a republic even in this period that House of Orange, uh, mm. kind of pseudo princes of the Netherlands are pretty important figures and, you know, merchants kind of control the country. So it's a little bit funny to look at that as kind of the origins of the Republic. Yeah, yeah. And weren't the the, the princes of the House of Orange, weren't they called Stadtholder or Stateholder or something like that? Which is this funny title, yeah. like like state leader. It's a very weird, ambiguous kind of arrangement, right? Yeah, yeah, so it's not supposed to be hereditary per se, like a hereditary nobility basically. But it kind of becomes uh, hereditary. And then there are periods where there's kind of two parties in the Netherlands called the, you know, Republicans and the Oranges. So the, mm-hmm. the Republicans are kind of these merchants who want more control for uh, the different provinces that they are in control. You know, they want to be, they're the governments of the different provinces of the different cities. So that's what they want. And the Oranges, Oranges want like a much stronger princely figure Yeah, so I think we can already kind of see from this conversation, like, when you look at a place that's been off the radar, like Batavia, even though it's a very important, long-standing colony, but when you look at things and you start from there, it kind of makes everything look a bit different, right? It, it changes the picture around when you then come back and talk about Europe and North America Yeah, and like you were saying, people are always looking for an origin story, sort of 
which origin story works well for them. And you could say David Hackett Fisher's massive book, Albion Seed, was kind of like a peace treaty where he says, well, there are these different hearths. There are these different groups from England that came over to America and created these different regions. You have the the Puritans in New England, and you have the West Country folks in Virginia, and the Scotch-Irish, and the Quakers from Northern England in Pennsylvania, and that's why you get this regionally complex America. And I think I read it, and I, and I said, well, wh where is the Dutch? You know, <laughs> leaving aside, what about Native Americans and Africans and all these people who are not European? It's like, what happened to the Dutch? <laughs> Do they just sort of fall in the cracks here? And I'm sure many people in, in Dutch history and Dutch studies are often asking the same question. <laughs> what about the Dutch? Where did they go? So I think this was a really illuminating conversation. And I think it worked well to sort of question, right, question our perceptions and our mythologies about the Dutch Empire, about early colonization, by coming from this kind of unusual place that Europeans and Americans need to think about. So thank you so much for having this conversation and being flexible, being a guinea pig. And is there anything else you, you want to add or any concluding thought? I guess I would just say more Dutch history everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. more Very good. Thank you for talking to me and letting me get some of the words out.